The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Good morning, everyone. We're reading from Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, and we're going to walk through what Luke has been writing about. And if, we, if, if, if you want to fully maximize this Acts journey, I would encourage you to discipline yourself over the next year to read through Luke's gospel, which bears his name, and then, then turn in and read the book of Acts. And do that as often as you can, because when you read it that way, it's going to feel as if Luke is writing to you. And for those of us in the room today, I would say that we're probably on two sides of some kind of fulcrum point in the middle here, where you're either on the side of, I'm looking towards Jesus, like, do I really want to believe in that? Do I, have, have I had enough? Um, do I sense the Spirit tugging at my heart enough that I want to put my faith in Jesus? Or you're on the other side of it where you have put your trust in Jesus, and now you're hanging on to him through the storms of life. And so we're really on either side of that point of belief. And so Luke is writing to a friend, Theophilus, and he wants him to fully understand what Jesus did in his earthly ministry and then what the early believers did in response to what they were taught about the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. And so I feel like there's so much that we can be learning in and through this. And so today, though, we find ourselves in Acts 2. It's at the end of Peter's epic sermon. The Spirit fell, he stepped out, he quoted Joel, he quoted the Psalms, and he basically shared with the people, you know what, the prophecies were that we were going to be in exile, and now that exile period is over. Because of Jesus, we're free. And then he goes on to say, which really began to continue to distance himself from the powerful leaders in in that early church, in the early day, not in the church, but in the time of the early church, there were powerful leaders in government and in the church that did not want Jesus to be the Messiah. They didn't want him to be the Lord of all, because if he was the Messiah and the Lord of all, that means they'd have to listen to him. And they were comfortable in the ways that they had gone astray and they didn't want to make any changes. And so Peter's sermon is rallying a whole group of people like, yes, it's true. We're at the end of the exile period. Jesus was who he said he was and he's resurrected and he is alive. And they're adding to the church 3000 people being baptized that day. 
But there's also this under, undercurrent we're going to continue to see in the next few chapters of people that did not want Jesus to be Lord, and they started waging war against the church. That's coming. So we're going to be dealing with in the next few weeks. But here in this particular passage of Scripture, I'm trying to figure out, how do I encourage those of you that believe, and then how do I also encourage those of you that don't believe at the same time? Because I don't want those of you that believe to lose your thoughts and start chasing something about the rest of your day while I try to be persuasive to those of you that don't believe. And then I also don't want to lose those of you that don't believe because I want you to believe while I'm trying to encourage the rest of you. And so this is the only way we're going to get through the next couple of Sundays. If you don't believe, I need you to listen to every word. And if you do believe, I need you to listen to every word. Because every single one of us either needs to be hearing it or speaking it. All of us. So if it's true, and those of you that believe, you believe that it's true, then who are we talking to about it? If it really is true in our life, who has God placed in my life that I'm able to say, let me tell you why I believe in Jesus. But there's a, some kind of disconnect, because so, so often in the church, is we feel like we need to take an unbelieving friend to somebody that's more wise or more articulate and so that they can then tell them about Jesus. But the thing that matters the most is your friend looking you in the face, saying to you, why do you believe? What do I do? And then you being prepared to give them an answer. And so today, whether we are looking to believe or you do believe, we need to listen intently because Jesus is alive. Jesus is resurrected. And Jesus has promised resurrection power to his church. And that means that we are no longer going to be bound to this body. He wants to physically resurrect who we are into this new life, into this new kingdom. And there's so much of that that's starting to happen here. And so I'm trying to figure out, how do I help us? And so I'm, a, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm a sports kind of pastor. And so every time I try to do some sort of arts illustration, I usually get laughed off the stage. And so I'm going to stick with what I'm better at, and that's sports. Um, but one of the things that I love to do that I haven't been able to do as often as I would like because it's rather expensive is snow ski. Um, I also have bad knees, and so snow skiing and, and knees generally need to work together in order to get you safely down the mountain. But I can remember the first time that my brother took me skiing. I was a freshman in high school, and he thought, well, you're athletic. You should pick it up pretty quickly. And he put the skis on my feet and took me to the top of the first mountain and he says, oh, this, this slope is easy. This blue is going to make it really easy for you to get down. And I didn't realize that the green was where I needed to go. And the blue was in the middle. And he didn't want to be bored with the green. He wanted to take me to the blue. And that was like, okay, you know, it's, it's semi-gradual. Just take your time. And his advice was go edge to edge and don't go straight down. And I'm like, okay, that sounds pretty easy. I had no idea what I was doing. And so all I know is I got to the edge and I just turned my skis and I had no idea to go how to go left and right. And thank the Lord my brother was extremely fast because he saw where I was heading and I, he knew I was out of control and he literally skied past me to a, a, a turn that went over the edge of this mountain and stopped and he caught me before I went over, right? Now my brother's never let me really live that down. Like he's like, you know what, you owe me. I'm like, how many times do I owe you, right? <laughs> I'm like, you're the one that sent me down that path in the first place. You owe me, right? But I'm screaming like some middle school boy running from a girls that want to kiss me on the playground, you know, to, um, to down this mountain because I was totally out of control. Now, there's a difference 
between, I shared a few weeks ago in an illustration of a time that my wife and I were, at, well, actually my wife and I weren't lost. I was lost in Cincinnati. She just happened to be on the journey with me, trusting me that I was heading in the right direction. And it was before GPS, right? So I am old enough to tell you that it's before GPS. Um, and I was, I, I, I'm like, I don't need the map. I can get where we're going. And, and it wasn't until I was several miles out of the way that I realized that I needed to turn around. Now, I share those two illustrations because I want you to understand that most of us feel like, oh, we just need a simple redirect. But in actuality, our life is like the first illustration where we are way out of control and we're heading for danger and we can't redirect without somebody rescuing us. Now, that's the spirit tension that I want to bring into Acts chapter 2 because if we're not careful... You and I will think, oh, I'm just taking a nice walk in the wrong direction, no danger. I just need to turn around whenever I want to. But in actuality, from the vantage point of God looking down on us, he sees us out of control, heading towards danger. And if we're not careful, we're going to go right on off. And Jesus is going to be standing there saying, let me catch you. And we're like, I don't need you. Right? It's going to be what's going to happen. And so... The reason why Acts 2 reads so majestically, the reason why Acts 2 has words like awe and wonder is because the people that were listening, at least a large percentage of the people that were listening, were hearing there's a rescuer on the course and he's going to save you if you allow him to do it. And so there's so much in this particular passage of Scripture And if we lose sight, that's why I said Luke is so important to Acts, because Luke is basically saying part one, part two. He's writing almost like a continuous thought. And many times because the books are separated, we don't go that direction. But if you were to take time in one sitting, it doesn't take all that long, and just read through the book of Luke, you will find that as you go chapter by chapter, Jesus' words to the people that are listening to him increase in volume and intensity every chapter you turn with warnings. It's like there's one warning in one chapter, two in the next, three in the next, four in the next. But by the time you get to chapters 19, 20, and 21, it is almost like Jesus is just speaking, look, you're getting ready to go off a cliff. That's basically the power and the intensity which Jesus is talking through Luke's gospel to the people that are listening to him. And he's like, look, if you do not stop and change your course or let us rescue you towards that course, there is going to be incredible amounts of destruction. Your enemies are going to come and destroy you is what Jesus actually says. And in Luke 13, verse 5, he says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. So there's this intensity building in Luke's gospel. So the people in the audience, we can't separate this. There's people in the audience that had heard Jesus preach this way. It's not like as if this is now years after Jesus has been resurrected. It's not years afterwards, decades afterwards, where somebody's like, well, maybe my grandfather told me something about this. But there are people that are like, wait a minute, Peter's saying now, Wait a minute, Jesus said this on this hillside. Jesus said this in in Galilee. Jesus said this from a boat when we were sitting on the seashore. And they're putting it all together and they're like, that's where the awe comes from. Because it was making sense to them. Because not only was it making sense because they were remembering it all, there's this new important ingredient that's introduced in Acts 1 and Acts 2, which is what? The Holy Spirit of God. And the Spirit is now revealing and tying all of that together for these people so that they can understand more fully all that God is doing. And in Acts 19, 41 and 42, as Jesus was approaching Jerusalem, 
excuse me, not Acts 19, Luke 19. As Jesus was approaching Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. Why would Jesus weep over Jerusalem? Because he knew that the people were heading off a cliff and they were refusing to let him catch them. So this is the, imagine, like I had a group of guys I was talking to on Tuesday, and, and the vision that they'd been taught about God was almost a, a, a bad adaptation of an old sermon um, called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. And so the, the, the posture, come here, Andrew, the posture of which most of us believe is that, here, stand here on the edge of the stage, and this is the abyss, right? And this is you. Most of us believe that the posture of God is like this, and he's throwing people off the cliff, right? Okay, sorry, I know that probably hurts a little bit down there. You'll be all right. Um, But this is what most people believe is who God is. Like, he's angry, he's upset at us, like, how dare you reject me? How dare you sin against me? And this is the posture versus a posture of seeing somebody come towards him and saying, I want you to stop. I don't want you to go off of this cliff. And when you have a mindset that God is angry, then you carry that into your everyday life. It impacts how you think from the moment you get up. And verses like God's mercies are new every day mean nothing to you. But when your posture is that God is here, knowing that we're out of control and he's done everything to rescue us, then we can say, yes, his mercies are new for me today. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> Andrew's like, all right, this is the reason why people don't sit in the front row when we set up chairs in the back. But I'm uh, very thankful for Andrew. He's a dear brother. Um, but when we read on in Luke and we read on through into the book of Acts, we are more and more and more introduced to a group of people that began to assume the posture of God in the world. I want you to hear me when I say this. They began to see what God had done for them, and they were not content with just saying, thank you, God. They were, as we said leading up to Easter, they allowed the rescuer to rescue them to be rescuers. And so the posture of the church is, let's put our back against the destruction that's in the world. Let's put our backs against the things that are against God and let's continue to keep our posture saying we are going to rescue, repent, turn around is what is happening here. And so as Luke is doing such an excellent job, he's sharing with Israel at this point in time, the people of Israel and Jerusalem, that God's judgment had fallen on Jesus so that they were not going to have to take it. The problem is, is that they didn't listen. Because did the people in Jerusalem turn from their idolatry? Did the people in Jerusalem decide to pick up the Sermon on the Mount and love their enemies and pray for those that persecuted them? Did the people in Jerusalem in the first century decide that they were going to live a life looking like Jesus or did they continue to seek power and to use violence and to seek the, the prophets in, in their first century? Because what ended up happening in the year, year AD 70? Rome attacked Jerusalem because what? Jerusalem had raised up in a revolt against Rome. Who was leading the revolt? The church. Not the, the Christian church. There probably were some that believed in Jesus that picked up a stone against a soldier. But yet the temple guard, the, 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 
the radical side of the Jewish people that refused to listen to the message of Jesus Christ continued, and what ended up happening, every, all, everything about the destruction of Jerusalem became true. And so for us, we have to begin to realize that we aren't just invited to have our sins forgiven, we're invited into a new life. We're invited into a new family. You've heard us say this if you've been a part of the Gallery Church for a while, that if you claim this, uh, the, fa- the Father and I claim the Father, that makes us brothers, or brothers and sisters, depending on our gender, right? And so if we're claiming the same dad, we're family. And so Jesus just didn't die to start the church. Jesus died so that he could help us as the big brother, guide us through what the family of God was supposed to look like. Now the disconnect between the first half of the verses that Andrew read for us, which is about repentance. Like you cannot read those verses and realize and think, hmm, I wonder what he means. There is no more concrete answer to the question, well then what now do we do? And he's like, repent and be baptized. So what does he, what does he want us to do? Repent and be baptized. So what does that mean? Uh, we repent and get baptized. I mean, we can make it as complicated as we want and do sermons on what the word repent means and do sermons on what the word baptism means. But at the end result, what it means is I was out of control and I'm repenting of that and I want to be identified with Christ. So how do I do that? I get baptized. And then I just start acting like the family member of God. And how did they know how to act like the family member of God? That's what ends up happening when he starts describing what's going on here. So this is the first verses in the New Testament that really, or in the early church, that speak of what salvation really looks like for us. Luke, I feel like now, is taking a deep breath. I don't know if you caught that in the actual scriptures here. He goes on to say, save yourself from the corrupt generation. And then he says, and those that accepted the message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So it's like you feel like he's been on this like typical, let me get the pastor all sweaty and, and, and loud and arms swinging, and then, then it's like this calm sets in. And he goes, oh yeah, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. So there's a huge posture shift in the way that Luke is writing here. And I want us to pick up on it because I think it's important. Because... Luke has been showing the trajectory of the church. It started with a conversation between Jesus and the disciples. And, And they were on this hillside where they started in a room. They had days and days and days of conversation. And then finally Jesus says to them, remember everything I told you? And then I I shared with you, he was referencing basically John 14 through 17 and everything he had told them about the days that were coming. He's like, look, I told you it was happening. It's here. Spirit's coming. Jesus leaves. They go, they, they cast lots. They elect a new disciple. So they have the 12 representing Israel going out. The spirit comes, they come out, they testify. Everybody thinks they're drunk. Peter stands up saying, no, we're not junk. It's, it's the Joel. It's Psalms. It's Jesus has is, is freed us. And now Jesus is king. And now Luke is like, okay, you've had enough adrenaline for a moment. Now let me just tell you, what did they devote themselves to? Because all this was happening and thousands of people were joining into this. If, if they didn't pause for a minute here, it's going to be like, how can you maintain this? Right? And so what happens here? is from the conversation with Jesus to the upper room, to the day of Pentecost, to Peter's address of, of the crowd, and then the statement about the good news and God's rescue plan, and now be saved and baptized in it. People responded to that. And then Luke now gives us what I believe 
are four. In, the, in, in, in church theology and church history, um, many theologians call these the four pillars of the church. And I think it's really good. Um, there's certain parts of scripture that I think we just, we don't need to mess with. <laughs> we don't need to try to overanalyze. Like, look, these are four foundations of what should be in the church. And if they're not there, something's wrong. And listen to what these four things are. The apostles teaching, teaching. We call it fellowship, but the summer translations have it, the common life of those who believed. And then the breaking of bread, which is the Lord's table, Lord's supper, and then the prayers. So they were doing the apostles' teaching, common life, breaking of bread, and prayers. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, Lord's Supper, and praying. And they were doing that daily. It's not complicated. But I am a firm believer that these four go together. If you take one away, it loses its strength. Let me give you an example. If you pay no attention to teaching, you do not make yourself available to any type of consistent Christian lifelong teaching and instruction in Jesus Christ. You are quickly going to revert to the worldview of the community where you live. Let's just be honest. If you don't have a place where you're being taught about who Jesus is and you're not going to a place on a regular basis, I'm even talking maybe more than once a week, where you are hearing somebody say, let's talk about Jesus Christ for a few minutes. If you're not finding a place where you can learn and grow about what it really means to be in the family of God, it will not take you long to adopt the worldview of the majority culture around you. If people were to ignore the common life of the Christian family, you become isolated, and it often becomes difficult for you to sustain living out your faith. So if you say, well, I just want to come and hear the teaching, I'm not interested in the relationships in the church family. Danger. Because the more that you isolate yourself, well, I'm just not finding anybody that I can connect with, or there's... There's pain that's happened in your life, and therefore you have connection issues. There's so many things, whether positive or negative, some that have been imposed on you and others by choice. But Jesus meets us in that. And so if you're a person that people have harmed you in the past, Jesus can heal that so that you can begin to have healthy connections to other people. If you're a person that has chosen isolation, Jesus can meet you there and help you wise up. Because we are not meant to be isolated beings. And there is no way we can live out our faith without working our faith out with a community of believers. And we are also a people who can't go on on a regular basis without coming to the Lord's table. If you um, have been a part of our church family for a little while, you know that almost every Sunday we come to the Lord's table. Partly because we feel like that's right now, it's very obedient to what God is asking for us as a church, to, a church to do. But we have to understand that the only anchor that we have in this world to get us through is Jesus Christ. If we're going to make sense of his teachings, there's going to come a point in time where everything is going to be so difficult. And if we don't find ourselves kneeling on the rock of Jesus Christ, everything is going to come crashing down around us. And so every week there's going to be things that we're going to be attacked with 
that the coming to the Lord's table is going to help us to remember so that we can stand for another week in the promises of God. And the fourth part of this, whenever people um, neglect prayer, we are losing our, one of our primary reasons, well, which is really one of the only reasons why we pray. You know why prayer doesn't make sense for a lot of us? is because either we haven't clearly taught it, and if that's the case, we're going to try to do better, or you just refuse to listen, which is also something we need to continue to work on. But prayer is where heaven and earth meets. I need that to sink in just for a minute. The heaven is not like some distant galaxy that a telescope hasn't discovered yet. So it's not like someday in the future we're going to become spaceships and we're going to be jolted off to eternity and we're just going to leave the earth. Heaven and earth is like a veil and it's just prayer pulls it back and it brings heaven and earth together. Then why do you think Jesus taught his disciples to pray, our Father who art in heaven? Because we're entering his gate in prayer. And so in that moment, we are literally standing in the gap. And the, the glimpse of resurrection is in our prayer life. The glimpse of Jesus being fully bodily resurrected is what we get a chance to taste and see a little bit of. And if you've ever been in a prayer moment, some of you have, so much so that you are like, absolutely, Ellis, thank you for the reminder. And others of you are like, man, I've been praying and I feel like my prayers bounce off the ceiling. And let me tell you this, we must stay consistent in prayer. Because if we are a church that gathers together and we have great fellowship, if we come to the Lord's table, and if we have great teaching, but we don't learn to pray, then people can't intersect heaven and earth with us. They might intersect with heaven and earth with somebody else in the church that prays, but we are meant to be an ambassador, an intersection between heaven and earth for people that yet are yet to believe. And what's happening in Acts chapter 2 is there's a whole bunch of intersection people now. Peter was one of them, the upper room, the men and women that were there start going out. And next thing you know, people are realizing that heaven and earth are coming together right in front of them. And their response is awe and wonder. Like, oh my, this is what it's all about. And when you begin to see this, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing. Imagine what the world would be like without these four pillars in it. Imagine what our world would be like right now without good teaching about Jesus Christ. No teaching about Jesus in the world at all. No teaching about the ways that the, the will of God is played out in the world. Take the Sermon of the Mount away, everything you've ever been taught, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Remove all of that. What would, be the, what would the world be like? Uh, first century Jerusalem, right? Because from the first century on, we've had this teaching. And so it's really hard for us to imagine the world without knowing what pleases the Father because we've had access to it. Now imagine these astonishing teachings. Now imagine seeing people with common life. And what that means was is that they cared for each other like family. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. This fellowship wasn't just a five to ten minute section in their service, but they actually ate together, lived together, shared things, which are mentioned here in just a few moments. 
There's this common life. So imagine people are only about their own individual families and the people that feel like they have no family. Now they see, wait a minute, good teaching. People are actually loving each other like family, and they'd never witnessed that before. And then they begin to see that they're breaking bread and talking about Jesus on a regular basis. And then they're like, wait a minute, they're inviting me into these prayer times? Can you not see why thousands of people were being added every day? I could see God like, wow, we need to put more people with them, right? Like, look, they're connecting. Heaven and earth is coming together with these people. And the Spirit of God is drawing people and convicting. It says the Spirit was convicting people because they had these four aspects of the church that they were working through. I think if we had been in that first century, we would know and taste what it really feels like to be wow. At best, you may have experienced a place where you've walked in and felt immediately accepted. That's probably the closest analogy that some of you could feel. Like a lot of you are like, well, I've been going around Baltimore looking for a church. Well, where do I feel most at home, right? You, you say, well, I'm looking for a place that, I, that just feels like family. Could you imagine walking into a place and experiencing these four pillars for the first time? Where you're like, whoa, these people truly love each other. These people are sacrificing for each other. These people pray. They worship God. So much of that's happening. The early Christians were living this way through the power of the Holy Spirit. I do feel like, though, that we need to focus on the fact that they were acting like a new family. Because there's a couple of concepts that are very important that they were doing that are very difficult to translate. But I just want you to know that even though they were adding thousands of people, they didn't let the difficulty of it keep them from doing it. All right, And some of you are already like, oh boy, I know where he's going with this. But in my home, you know, I could go around saying I'm the primary breadwinner. Thank you. Somebody said it, right? Okay. Oh, yes, he's talking about money now. Everybody's like, well, let me reposition myself, get a little uncomfortable. He's going to be talking. But, I mean, number one, have you ever been around somebody that says, yeah, I'm the primary breadwinner in my family? That generally does not make people feel nice and warm and fuzzy things around you. You can say it in a truthful way where it doesn't sound like pride. You know, but I don't go to the refrigerator and open the refrigerator and say, that's my milk, that's my eggs, that's my orange juice, Caleb. Put, well, sometimes I do say that's my orange juice, right? Um, but I don't, we don't go around generally um, unless it's one of my children that goes to the store and buys something specifically for themselves and I'm reaching for it. Like, no, Dad, I bought that for myself, right? And I'm like, right? Yeah, we get defiant, those kind of things. But we don't go around the house saying, that's my sofa, now, some of you do have your chair. We'll, we'll, we'll absorb that just for a minute and just take that out of the way. But you, that's, that's where I always sit. Some of you are like that in church. You freak out when you come in and like one of the guests gets here before you. Well, most of you don't care. Um, the, uh, um, but we, have, we don't go around the house saying, well, this is mine. You know, that's my closet door, right? We don't do that. It's, it's common. It's our families. It's, this is us. This is what's here. And in Acts chapter 2, and we're going to find as we go through the first next several chapters of the book of Acts, they're going to be showing us how they lived out what I call a common purse. And that is so difficult for the church to figure out, especially in our culture today. But we read things like some people, could you imagine sitting in church next to somebody and realizing that they didn't have a home and you had two? And you said, here, you can have my second house. Could you imagine what it would feel like in this room 
if you had excess land, which, mind you, in the first century Israel, land wasn't just a, uh, an investment. It wasn't a family identity. Jewish people were given land when they took over the promised land. Their name was attached to acreage. And so if they were saying, wait a minute, I have extra land. I'm just going to sell it because you have need. Imagine, I mean, I want us to know that they, it's not just something they did in the first century and that we need to ignore it. There's something here that we have to be sensitive to the Spirit and say, Father, teach us. Because in our economy today, we are solely, basically, an economy where we just go get a paycheck and we put it in the bank. And sometimes you never even see the check anymore. Everything's direct deposited. Money's electronic. Not like we're carrying cash around. Some of you intentionally don't carry cash around so that if people ask you for money on the sidewalk, you can go, I don't have any. Right? I mean, we, there's so much now that we're doing that money is a totally different conversation. And so Luke doesn't do an excellent job here talking about how they worked it out. We're going to talk more about that in the coming weeks. But here we must admit and we must say, Holy Spirit, teach me. Because somehow what they were experiencing when Peter talked about Joel, when Peter quoted Psalms and he began to shape his sermon when the Holy Spirit was pouring out of them and they were listening in the teaching, something in their mind snapped and they were like, oh, I don't care if you're a Jew or Gentile, a slave or a landowner or whatever, you are now welcome at my table. And by welcoming them at your table, they were now welcome to everything you owned. Baltimore needs the church to figure this out. We've got to figure this out. But one of the things that happens so often is, is we always think people that make more money than us have to be the ones to be better stewards of their money. When in actuality, whether you have $10 to your name or $10,000 to your name or $100,000 to your name or a million dollars to your name, we all are required to be good stewards of our money. No matter if you own a house or you rent an apartment or you own a car or you're always Ubering, it doesn't matter. We're all responsible to be good stewards of what God's given us. And imagine the testimony in Baltimore, in the church, if people walked in the door and said, oh my goodness, these people treat each other like family. We need more than just good singing. We need more than just good teaching. We need people willing to say, Lord, what does maturity look like in the way that I help my neighbor, that I help my brothers and sisters in the church? And there's so much of this that's kind of becoming. And so we as brothers and sisters in this passage need to realize that in our statement of faith, in our baptism, in our shared faith, in our fellowship, in our breaking of bread, we are pointing people to a resurrected Jesus. And it's time that all of us that believe in particular begin to figure out that our friends and family are on a crash course and they do need to understand a rescuing message because it is really good news. And there's great joy in living the life until Jesus comes back that's called the kingdom life. This description that's happening at the end of Acts 2 is a description of the joy that happens when people fully embrace the teachings of Jesus Christ. And I can't wait for us to experience that more and more full as we learn and mature in the things that God is teaching us. So let's pray together. Father, right now we're 
wanting to be obedient to what we've even been taught today. Father, you, this, today you even laid it on Blake's heart to lead us in a time of prayer because, Father, prayer is um, more than just important. It's, it's necessary. It's life. It's, it's when we truly get to be what we were created to be, heaven and earth beings. And, Lord, I pray that you would continue to teach us to pray. But, Father, we're also getting to the point now where we're going to come to the Lord's table we're going to have a chance to respond in prayer and confession and, and then to remind each other of the breaking of the bread, of his body being broken and his blood being poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. Father, you are an, an amazing lover of us, and you've rescued us. And so, Lord, we want to live our life aware of that rescue. And so, Father, today I pray in Jesus' name that those that don't yet believe would place their faith and their trust in you. And Father, for the rest of us, Lord, would you mature us? Would you grow us up? Would you help us, Lord, to display a resurrected Jesus in all aspects of our life? Father, would you make us a generous people? Would you teach us how to continue to use our time, our talents, our resources, the things that you've blessed us for your kingdom purposes? Lord, would we not hold too tightly to the things that you've given us? And Father, thanks to, to Tolkien, I can't get Gollum's words out of my head where he's like, my precious, you know. Lord, I just constantly, I'm reminded of that voice when I feel selfishness creep into me. And Father, when I'm selfish, I am that ugly and I'm that disgusting. And Father, I don't want people to see that in me. I want it to look like the joy and the power of a resurrected Christ freely given displaying love at its clearest. And Lord, I know that's the image that we as a church family want to display. And so, Father, uh, we commit our, our, our time, talents, and treasures to you. And so, Lord, we love you. And, um, Father, we want to see your kingdom come. We want to see our baptism tank full every week. Um, and, Lord, I pray that you would continue to teach us how to speak the good news to those around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.